0: Now you hear it.
1: When you're a child, you learn there are three dimensions: height, width, and depth, like a shoebox. Then later you
0: hear there's a fourth dimension, time. From Seattle, we are drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker and I'm Michael Claussen.
1: All right, Michael, we're back. In the studio after a much-deserved break for you on the Isle of Hawaii. Um, Any major life changes at all?
0: This is true. I did have a brief vacation in Hawaii for the purpose of a honeymoon. I did get married. Uh, If there are any changes in my attitudes, opinions, perhaps that could be attributed to my marital status. But I'm guessing after... Dating my now wife for over eight and a half years, being three weeks into marriage, probably not going to be too many changes.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty pretty confident there's going to be little changes, and um, if there are, I will have no problem berating you for them.
0: Most definitely. Call me out.
1: Um, Today, we are rescreening a film from Max Ophuls, a refugee of Hitler's takeover of uh, Europe. And the film is Letter from an Unknown Woman, um, which is originally based on a novella written by Stefan Schweig, who's also displaced by the Nazi occupation of Europe. Um, any first reactions, thoughts to either the novella, which I uh, happily convinced you to read, or the film, which I happily convinced you to watch?
0: I adored both the novella and the movie. I am... Um, big fan of this one um very happy you suggested it and i understand you have a uh strong affection for both as well
1: yes i love this film um and i have a very long history with stefan schweig not just this book or novella but many of his stories um and him as a as a creative and um artist who was amongst a certain group of people that vanished kind of like the Austria that we see within the film um, you know this is hearkening back to something that no longer exists and will never exist again and there's kind of a, a love-lorn love-loss to it um, that I think is particularly heart gorgeous
0: lots of heartbreak in this text for sure by the time you read this letter I may be dead I have so much to tell you
1: and perhaps very little time. Will I ever send it? I don't know. I must find the strength to write now before it's too late. And as I write, it may become clear that what happened to us had its own reason beyond our poor understanding. If this reaches you, you will know how I became yours when you didn't know who I was. Letter from an Unknown Woman. Originally published, I believe, in 1921 as a novella by Stefan Schweig in Vienna. Um, later adapted in 1948 to film by Max Ophuls. One of the... One of um, Stanley Kubrick's considered greatest filmmakers of all time.
0: I think uh, Andrew Sarris is one critic who's also uh heaped acclaim on Ophels, I think among many, many others. Um You wanna start personal? I'm curious just to know how long ago it was that you read the novella, because this is one that I've heard you um mention many, many times as one you really, really adore.
1: Yes. Uh so I first read this novella when I was fifteen or Mm sixteen. It was um directly after I'd read Herman Hesse's Demian, which is equally um Kind of a, a deeply personal, moving work that has meta-textual symbolism inside of it and the author's own personal issues inside of it um, as well. We just talked about um, Death in Venice from Thomas Mann.
0: You know, these
1: are these are all you know contemporaries of the Austro-Hungarian great works of literature at that time um, that really influenced me as a teenager, I guess. Um, The love story here is fascinating because it is complete ownership um, for suffering and masochism and delights Mm. and relishes in it, um, but is, like, wholly responsible for it, too. There's no accusation. There's no accusatorial behavior in it. Um, And a lot of the criticism of the novel and the film, especially the film that I've come across... Is missing that point and they're trying to make a claim that like that she is a victim and that he is a perpetrator kind of um, because he's aloof and he's pursuing his own life's objectives, which while you may disagree with, he undoubtedly is enjoying himself. Um, Mm. And so... Yeah, it's one of those deep rich works that the more I look at the more I appreciate. I recently reread it um in preparation for this and just like I did the first time I read it, the end made me cry.
0: There you go, gets the emotions flowing. Gets
1: the waterworks every time.
0: I I can completely understand that. Uh yeah, I had not seen this film until you suggested it for discussion. Uh and I read the novella in Preparation for it, which I very much enjoyed. It was odd to read something uh, so heartbreaking while sitting next to the pool in Maui. That did not feel like on it, your honeymoon. It did not feel like the right setting That's exactly. That's what I was
1: thinking as well. But I was like, uh, "If he's gonna read it, he's gonna read it." I'll but
0: it. it's fabulous, no doubt. Um, and I and I adore this movie and um, some of the other Opals movies that I watched. Um, uh, in tandem with it, in the last uh, couple weeks or so, um, as we were chatting last night, I know you also caught "Caught," right? The other yes, Ophel's film. That's
1: correct. I Called I'm, "Caught." I'm, I'm simultaneously <laughs> trying to pull up my uh, my Max Ophel's list so that I know which ones I watched. Um, so "Caught" is my favorite other American film that I watched from him. Um, I I'm not certain about this, but I'm pretty sure that the the staircase of the mansion in cop is the same exact staircase of the, um, the theater here in a mm. uh, letter from an unknown woman, um, which is just like a fascinating thing to observe. Like the recycling of like, one is like a personal house and one is a public yeah. house and just how Ophel's perhaps had his favorite things to go to here in America. Um, this is also Letter from an Unknown Woman is also his first film as an American, if I remember correctly. He immigrated in 41 and then went seven years without making a film. Um, But yes, I caught, caught, and it's a delightful film. Um, She also, at one point, which happens in Letter from an Unknown Woman, the film, is uh, a clothing model. So Mm -hmm. she's a shop girl, quote unquote, where women come in and they want to see clothes modeled and you walk around and i it's there's just a lot of repetition to what he was doing here in America um and i only caught one of his european films um mm. which you did as well and i did not respond very well to it at all and i know you did that's Ronde.
0: oh interesting interesting uh didn't do much for you
1: i was entirely mixed on it i do not mm-hmm. dislike it there's a lot of things that i think are Ingenious with the camera But the uh, the narrative composition And I just um, Did not find myself Gripped by it at any point It's one of those things where it's like this is a master with a camera But I don't care about the story
0: That is easily I think uh, his like More playful of the movies yes. I've seen Right like considerably lighter In tone than yes. But each the of one these is very
1: today. Mature very uh, adult It handles it, I believe just in general, he handles sexuality in a very, what I would call French way, even though he's Austrian. Mm-hmm. Um, like, he is not shirking away from the fact that people have sex and expressing themselves as adults and making adult choices with their sexuality. And I, I just found that fascinating, especially at this point in time.
0: Oh, yeah, especially in Love, Ronde. Those characters have sexual appetites. That is, like, yes. the movie. But that's, that's
1: European <laughs> cinema, so, I mean, he's oh, getting yeah. away with a lot more there. But, I mean, even his American films, like um gosh there's something like the the reckless moment yeah the reckless moment where the entire film is predicated on a murder that um isn't really a murder it's an accidental murder Mm. um from a daughter who's been sleeping with uh an older man and then the mother finds out that she accidentally killed the man and then the mother covers it up and tries to keep the daughter from ever finding out it's fascinating Mm,
0: interesting that's cool. Um, because
1: it's like, you know, it's contemporary. At that point in time, Hollywood cinema and the entire premise is like your adulterous daughter and you're trying to cover up her murder. Like, it's just fun. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's the, almost Hitchcock. The, the difference between the, uh, the risque elements of some of the French films and what seems to have been subjected to the censors in Letter from an Unknown Woman is kind of striking. This is a mm-hmm. relatively tame uh film in in a sexual way um even in comparison to the text like yes. um, the stefan's Zweig text for sure
1: v- yeah <laughs> very much so she's she's saying like how much pleasure she's getting from the agony of wanting him and not having him and mm-hmm. that is they never go into the fact that she's like she's getting self-gratification from um masochism essentially like they never actually dig into that
0: right right um yeah uh, i mean i could imagine the the really a really cynical critic out there calling it a kind of misery porn mm-hmm. which i would never call it but i could uh see that as something as a plausible response yeah. More the text than the, the a movie. A plausible,
1: unreasonable response. Yeah, yeah. That's a good yes. way to put it.
0: <laughs> um, you want to talk about the narrative a little bit? Um, using maybe the film as like our grounding point. Um, since they are different in some pretty significant ways. And then, as, as needed, talk about where they diverge.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know... Th- how interesting it's going to be, but it's kind of hard for me to not talk about it without the text. Um, yeah, I don't know yeah. for you if it's, if it's easier or not, but so the beginning and we're already differing from the narrative itself is, um, he's coming home. Stefan is coming home from being out with his friends. And, um, in the morning he has to catch a murder. He has to catch a duel. He has to fight someone to the death. And this is the framing device of the narrative. This is also the end of the film is the resumption of this duel, um, that has to occur. And this duel is with a man who marries her central figure, um, played by Joan Fontaine, who has a name that she should not have, but Mm -hmm. whatever. And her name is Lisa within this film. Um, so Lisa's husband, um, is aware that she was in love with him and, uh, From what I gather with the way that the narrative is presented, you know, we just have to kind of talk backwards and forwards Mm -hmm. because of how the, you know, the letter is delivered at the end of life and she's dead. Yeah. But he doesn't know that apparently because Mm -hmm. the last name that she says is not his name, but rather Stefan's name. So the letter goes to Stefan and he doesn't know that his wife is dead and he, I gather, thinks his wife is in the arms of Stefan. So... Mm. that's the framing device of the film. And then a letter is delivered because she says with her last breath, Stefan's name and they go, um, we proceed to go up the stairwell that we will get to know very well. And Stefan reading a letter from an unknown woman and a beautiful gauzy mirage spiral pirouetting um, camera work with smoke and effect effect allures us into a narrative story um, that is presented entirely by Lisa. Um, There's many film critics. um, We've talked about film spotting a lot, Josh, Josh Larson among them, who, and I think Adam even agreed with him, who thought that this film was um, Stefan's imagining of the narrative. But if you watch the film, it's very clear that he almost always has a shadow on his face and she's always lit up. Mm. And like, it's, it's just so clear that this is her telling her story, which is exactly what the narrative is. And Mm. that he's just a side character in this girl pursuing the ideal of, of lust and longing and that he really has nothing to do with it. It's he, she's not even in love with him. She's in love with the ideal of him. And it's, Mm. it's so fascinating to me that so many people that I I like have gotten this so wrong to, to think that this is about him and not about her.
0: Um, yeah I think yeah to, to think that the movie is more interested in his perspective than hers seems off to me for sure there are little moments that are I mean I guess you could call them little inconsistencies where we're within that kind of um the inner narrative not the framing device where we're seeing Stefan with a character other than um Lisa Joan Fontaine's character in the movie and she's not present which makes you think are we are we that hearing this from his perspective like there's a or moment
1: are we with her imagining all those women that were with him
0: that's that's true but there's like the moment where he goes to a I think it's at the restaurant or the hotel and he briefly talks to the restaurateur about um he's asking the restaurateur to please, tell his other women to not bother him tonight or something like that because he's got someone he's already with which honestly read more just like a little inconsistency than something that truly suggests to me we're seeing this through his eyes i very much think our perspective is that of lisa's uh as so long as we're in the inner narrative
1: yeah but that's that's to me where the masochism comes in
0: Mm. just a
1: little bit because the entire, like, if you go look, she's she's lit up with a halo light, like, the entire time. Like, everything is about how she's entering the frame. It, everything mm. about him is how he's engaging with her. And even that little thing that you're bringing up is about how he has to hold back the tides of women because mm. of, of her, you know? And it's mm. it's all, you know, the self-centered egoness that I I love narratively. Like, I just... I, th- I think it's amazing because it, it is um, deeply personal and it's unfamiliar, but true.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, this idea about masochism and, and the text, Stefan Zweig's text suggesting that Lisa or the unknown woman takes some pleasure in denying herself um, in the something. Ending. Yeah, I don't know that that entirely comes through for me in the movie Um, To me, the essence of the heartbreak in the movie and and the text to some extent, this is all a little fuzzy, but it's just the idea that like one of the things that's even worse than not being loved back by someone you are in love with, someone you completely adore or idolize or are utterly infatuated with is realizing that you might have made no impression on them at all, that to them you are forgettable. Like that Mm -hmm. is so much worse than them just saying, I'm not interested or I don't want you anymore. Um, and how crushing that is to your sense of your own value, your own how interesting you are. Um, I'd have to. You're you're talking about the masochism mm-hmm. in the text. I think I'd maybe have to keep that at the front of my mind if I were to watch the movie again and see where do I see her taking pleasure in this on screen. Um, right.
1: So there's there's a duality here. There's a bicameralism where it's she's simultaneously protecting herself from ever, tr- from she's trying to protect herself, um, perhaps subconsciously, from ever truly being rejected by never truly pursuing her dream, right? It's 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 just like everybody who says, this is my dream to do it, and then does nothing about it. You're protecting yourself from failing. So she's kind of protecting herself from failing while she's simultaneously longing. And then when she has these moments where she's very meek and she's very um, happy, you know, for these moments that happen when she's 20, and, um, you know, less happy when she's 30, obviously, because she leaves. Um, there, there's a duality at play where it's she doesn't really want to spoil the ideal. And, and I have to say this again. She, it, I mean, it's up to you and your interpretation, but especially in the film, she's not in love with the man, Stefan. She's in love with the ideal that he represents. And it's a cultured ideal. It's a it's an idea of an adult man that is artistic and profound and, and masterful and genius and finds her equally beautiful and worthy of doting upon because he's a man of such stature. Which by him doting on her that elevates her own um, like importance. And that's another thing that he um, that Max Ophuls gets at in the film *Caught*. It's, Literally uh, a woman between two men and figuring out that the richer one that's more cultured is not the one that she likes so much as the doctor who um, actually sees her as a person. This is an idea that, I mean, is central to a lot of narratives. But I I just, I don't see how you could not see that. At least, I, I don't see how you could disagree with that one it's put out in front of you.
0: The that being that she um, is attracted to the ideal of him yes. versus the, the yes. man this himself. is once again
1: the death in Venice problem this is the problem with Austro-Hungarian writers in contemporary um, life I guess is like they're writing about symbolism, they're writing about ideal, they're writing about um, deeper things and then they're marrying those into people so they're making an ideal into a person and that's how they achieve great narrative strength um, and it's, I think hard to, um, for people unfamiliar or people that disagree to, um, you know, come to terms with that.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's much, much more evident in the novella than the film for me, which suggests to me she very much would spend her life with Z- Stefan if he remembered her and if he was genuinely, curious about her in the same way that she is about him uh, how confident
1: are you that it would last
0: uh well we don't know we don't have enough of a sense of of who, whether or not he'd make a good husband so i think it's more uh i think the movie suggests it's, it's a little more on him that this is not manifesting than her i don't know that i see the the film language telling me that it wouldn't last because she wants the ideal of him and not the man himself If that makes sense. I actually think the book, you know, there are some really interesting lines when, um, the two of them go to the park and, you know, he says something like, I like coming here in the winter and I don't know why. Um, and she says, well, it's because you get to imagine what it would be like in the spring. You get to imagine what it was like. You like not quite knowing you like the Mm -hmm. picturing of it. And then there are the comments about the mountaintops because he's a mountain climber. And he says, I actually always just like imagining that there's one bigger mountain. Um, so, you know, you could argue that what what she is describing is actually something more like herself, where she likes the idea of him um, rather than him himself in the same way that he likes um, the to imagine spring in the park. But I actually think, and I think that kind of works if you're talking about the text, Stephen Zweig, but I think the film's perspective is that... That's kind of the problem between them is that that is a good description of him. He likes the mystery about her, and she says that verbatim at one point. You love mystery. He is attracted to the fact that he doesn't know very much about her. She, on the other hand, has this intense curiosity about who he is. She has this fascination with the objects that are going into his house. She wants to learn about the music he plays. She wants to dance to be familiar with his world. And so there's this incompatibility in that she has this intense curiosity to want to know him, to want to understand him, um, to to want to know him. And, and he, he likes that unknown, and that's the problem because it generates his forgetfulness, his um, it, his vague, foggy memory, which I think is just, it's almost like the reverse of what we're talking about in the text itself, which is about her wanting an ideal, wanting something that she'll never quite know, if that makes sense.
1: So I I see how you're getting there. I just, my read of like the opening of the um, film when she's a little girl and she is leaning into a moving carriage and she's observing a harp. Like I, that to me isn't her wanting to get to know him that's her falling in love with the ideal like that she's falling in love with objects she's falling in love with a silhouette in a window while she's on a swing she's following falling Mm. in love with with the sounds that this person makes and his reputation before she ever sees him right Mm. this is this is um you know pedestalizing this is um it's not quite worship but it's it's girlish um you know, delight and adoration and almost hero worship um, rather than romantic love at first, right? And maybe it does evolve to something more mature toward a romantic love, but still, foundationally, there is a girl who was fascinated and began this type of hero worship love thing. And um, from the start, it was not, she was not saying it openly. It was not even true to her closest family members, like her mother or her Mm. mother's husband. Like this is a very private thing. And it seems like she's not letting herself get hurt by a person who is more than a person. They're an idea. And that idea isn't just an idea that she has. That's an idea she has about herself.
0: And as Mm. soon as
1: she loses that, then she'll lose the idea that she has about herself. And Mm. that's where, the the magic is because it, it's not so much a fear of him it's a fear of what he changes about who she sees herself to be
0: i i see that more i completely see that in the text more so than the film where i feel like she has this desire to satisfy the curiosity she yeah, has there's, about there's him.
1: weird things in in the movie right there's um so in in the novel she literally just runs across the room to see him at the ball near the end um what is it um, in the film I think Mozart's The Magic Flute is is on um, mm. in the theater and and then so in the film she like leaves and she's pacing behind pillars and mulling things over this is also something he repeats in Caught in a Garage um, where you know Ophels is here creating a, a philosophical dilemma for her whereas in the novel she is taken completely by her emotionality and overtly embarrasses her husband
0: yeah um yeah I think Ophel's opts for the more audience friendly um version of this story yeah, where
1: like commonplace yeah
0: where she where Lisa is um s- struggling to continue to pursue this after a certain point after she sees that um she is. She has proved to have been forgettable to him, and it's almost like this selfless kind of gesture she makes um, by, um, you know, not wanting to bring her child uh, into his world. She said she didn't want to burden him. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very selfless kind of devotion. Um,
1: Are we talking about the novel or the film?
0: Um, I think that's kind of true in both. Actually, this the selflessness. Well, the aspect the of novel, her love—it's
1: more selfish, right? She gets mm. her own him in the novel. That mm. she she expresses that a little bit more of of like you, you know satisfied greed of like now I had a part of you.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think the movie pitches her um, decision to not share the information about them having a child with him as a selfless act. I think she yes. literally said that in, in the narration, right? So yeah, they didn't want to, to burden you with uh uh this, I guess. Yeah.
1: Speaking of which, I mean, one of the best movies with narration.
0: Oh, 100%. Like... You can't really do it without narration. Um And I think just in general, it's an interesting adaptation because it's such a short... Movie. It's under ninety minutes. I think it flies by. I think it's a very it fast-paced movie. Um, the the original text is already quite short, and there's a lot that it kind of cuts out. Um, so it feels very concise, but it I don't feel like it sacrifices depth or feeling. Um, it achieves a lot with uh, with quite little and a very rather simple premise. Um, pretty uh. Effective use of the of both the narration and the framing device. I think that all worked quite fantastically. Right,
1: and I think the reason for that is the craft work happening on the back end. It's these gauzy, you know, beautiful looking interiors. It's the exteriors where there's somehow always a halo light on Joan Fontaine's face. And um, every other character, you know, is seemingly underlit. And then you've got these things happening in the background that just really establish the place. At one point, you, there's the... Uh, there's the street lighter, um, who at that point in time was literally like, I, I believe he was just part of the meritocracy, um, pr- probably very low on the totem pole, and they would just walk around with a fire pole, and they would um, have a hook on it at the end, and they would open the street lamp, and they mm. would put the fire on the other side of that end, in and light it, and then they would close it, and just seeing that stuff happen in the background really actually grounds the the place and the time in a way that um, a lot of these other films that I've seen from this period just do not do that.
0: Completely. I think it's a very rich film for how it handles characters, just like the one you mentioned, some of these little supporting characters who only have a few seconds of screen time or or maybe more like the case of Stefan's um, servant, who's mute here, but not not, not mute in, in Stefan Zweig's text, if I remember right. Uh, but he also, Ophel's is just like, takes a couple seconds to just kind of pause on these other little side characters who are involved or this and that, like the operators of the amusement park ride. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no real need for us to kind of like just pause and hold on the image of the guy who kind of cranks the different backgrounds of the train as they quote unquote, you know, traveled the world. Um, uh, There are, um, you know, the, musicians when stefan and lisa go dancing one evening late into the night and the musicians are kind of uh complaining about how late it is and how they want to go home um there's some really and on that note there's some great little touches of of relief um because this is a very um uh, it's a movie with a lot of heartbreak those little touches of relief i think go a long way without being corny um those are quite welcome in my opinion,
1: I completely agree. There's um, there's also I can't remember because of the way this is cut if there's a separate ballroom in the same park where they get on the train or if it's like a ballroom attached to that same area. But there is um, a whole kind of mini orchestra playing for them. And at one point there's a back and forth between like the orchestra leader and like first chair or whatever instrument. Saying, you know, I I don't like playing for these people. They're they're not married, you know. It's, it's mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. they're doing is improper. I I like playing for people that are married that can go home and do something about it. And it's just like, mm-hmm. y- you know, you can't tell if that's commentary that like they wanted in there, or if that's commentary that they put in for like the MPAA. Like what yeah. what exactly am I hearing here? It's it's like it's a great way of handling. It either way it's just it's one of those Fascinating bits of dialogue it's like This thing is not like the other things <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah it's This um, a Funny kind of echo with um, uh, Some scenes in The Earrings of Madame Duh where The the heroine and uh, Her lover in that movie Dance night after night After night and there's kind of this long montage Of them dancing repeatedly And there's the exact same kind of thing Where the musicians Say a very similar kind of the remark they're like go home already um which is just funny because it's it's this very clear echo but also you know the idea that when you're in love when you're in the throes of passion you can outlast everybody you can you can just keep going you get lost in 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 time mm-hmm. um it's a nice little idea there's also on the note of comedic relief the very first um scene within the inner narrative where Stefan's moving in and we see all these musicians being carried up. And one of the movers is like, why couldn't you have played the piccolo instead of the piano?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, not like a laugh out loud moment, but still a genuinely funny kind of comment that the piccolo of all things is just a nice little touch.
1: Yeah, no, that is, I, I love that sequence, right? Because it, it starts with her leaning into from the outside, you know, trying to reach in, which is exactly just what the entire film is. Um, how about Joan Fontaine for you? 12, 20, 30. Did she work? Did she not work?
0: Oh, you mean those are ages you're throwing yes. out? Yes. Oh, I The film love, starts and she's 12. Then right, she hooks right. up with
1: Stefan, and that's how they have a child at 20, and then at the end of the film, 30.
0: The age thing is very interesting here. I, I think she is great, and so much... Of It has to do with like all this that she's kind of withholding because she's trying to kind of put on a brave face. She doesn't really want to break down in front of Stefan, but she looks so giddy with excitement when when they're enjoying their 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 moments of happiness. And then when she uh, is almost on the verge of telling him who she is and the fact that he's forgotten, like you can just, you, you feel how much she is concealing it. Um, all that withheld emotion, I think is really great. Um, there's yeah. What about you before I keep talking? I mean,
1: she, I think she works flawlessly with Ophuls to make the camera itself elicit the idea of like the actual idea of her internal monologue happening. Mm-hmm. Even when she's not narrating, it feels like you can feel her like I, I don't like the choice to have a philosophical um, debate rather than have a, a emotional um, upheaval mm-hmm. at, in the, the ball. But I mean, he still handles that flawlessly when she's pacing back and forth behind the pillars and the camera mm-hmm. is tracing in this really weird way back and forth handheld cinematography that i i can't explain like exactly what it's doing or like how it's in sync but you get this you like you begin to deliberately sense exactly what she is deliberating on and it it isn't correct to compare these two films but there's something magical that happens in uncut gems too where the camera is informing how stressed out you're getting
0: yeah, yeah, and yeah.
1: <laughs> it's reflective of how stressed out Adam Sandler's character is. Mm-hmm. And there's something interesting there where there's are really great filmmakers um, that I seem to respond to like w- with my body rather than my head. Like this film is, they're making me feel something with their camera that I can't really explain how they did.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. There's there's some pretty elaborate shots in this movie so many in that stairwell where she Lisa lives as a teenager with um, Stefan. There's just like a lot of kind of verticality to those shots when she's at the top of the staircase and looking down or reverse um, and to kind of tie that back to what we were just talking about with her age. I think this is interesting in how it's kind of like delicate about the age difference which whereas I think the text is a little more frank about her being considerably younger mm-hmm. than him. Um but I think Opal is kind of like hints at it in some uh visual ways when I mean, that's usually because she seems to like literally be looking up at him. Like when yeah. he's playing at the piano and she's kneeling, she looks like a little girl there. I mean, when um, she's on the swing. On the swing, he puts the bib on her, um when they're going out to dinner, right? The yeah. the Lobster bib, um, yeah, but it's um, it's clearly defending itself a little bit too from what might gross out an audience of. Well, there, there's no sexuality
1: when they're twelve. When she's twelve,
0: right, and she doesn't even look twelve to me at that point, which I think No, helped. but she does look <laughs> younger oh, she looks like than she
1: looks later. For sure, it's for very sure. interesting, like how they pull that off. And there's a lot of like um, the camera being really far away from her, or um like shrinking her w- with some like larger objects or larger men around her. Mm-hmm. Um her standing behind a door. Like mm-hmm. there there's just things that kind of um don't necessarily say I'm young, but say like I'm diminutive. Um mm-hmm. in the visual language that I think is really um interesting choice wise.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which I think is a really cool way for the movie or Opal's to sort of respect that element of Zweig's text without making it too front and center that it's Mm -hmm. this like may december relationship because otherwise that could too easily become the point which i don't know that it really is the point that there's an age difference yes Um, yeah i'm glad this isn't
1: going death in venice right right (laughs) that can be just
0: distracting
1: (laughs) but i I mean it does it does underline my point earlier which is like this is a girlish infatuation this is like close to hero worship yeah and this is like you know a boy crush thing where she just never got over it and you know there's tons of girls all over the country now that you know had this for justin bieber or whoever the the hot mm. new heart throb is robert pattinson etc and then you know life goes on and they grow out of it but this is like a more intimate this is my personal you know celebrity boy crush type of a, a thing
0: yeah yeah um I was very struck by the prevalence of music just everywhere in this movie. Not just the fact that he is, Stefan is the concert pianist, but there's all this like diegetic music too. Like when she goes to Linz and she's having her little dates with a guy who wants to marry her as the band is kind of a marching around the Mm Linz, like courtyard. Um, when she first meets Stefan, there's a little group of street singers nearby. Um, uh, which, again, just gives this really kind of... makes for a very aesthetically rich kind of film experience when there's so much music and so much of it is really beautiful. And the score itself... I don't know about you, but with old Hollywood movies, sometimes the scores just don't leave an impression because they are always orchestras. Um, some are more distinctive than others. There's a melody, though, that's in this score that is just so bittersweet and, and so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good stuff.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's so many different simultaneously things right there's there's Ophel's own reverence for Stefan Schweig and then there I forget the screenwriter's name Zorn maybe was the last name um who, had, who adapted it right but then there's there's also um Ophel's now post-World War II like trying to hearken back and like conjure up this ideal of Austria and like Mm -hmm. You know, even though there's this love-lorn, love-sick narrative happening that is this Hollywood melodrama... Um, in a way there's also, like you said, these diegetic streets of that are come to life with this beautiful art and these people that are living life and, you know, they might be working one day, but then the next day they're escorting their 12 year old daughter around the streets of Linz, Mm -hmm. dressed up fancy and like living life and, um, in a really like gorgeous gaudy without being like overly, um, focused on wealth way. In the film, you know, like it's it's this great remembrance um, that I think is deeply personal and how it's expressing Austria, um, which is maybe why it's so good. Um, mm. And then the quality of the text inside of all these emotions that are pouring out of a seven year hiatus filmmaker who, you know, is after this film, someone who's close to the word master.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're talking about recreating Vienna and just the sense of place. Like, there's always just a lot to look at. Um, even in the first half, I feel like the second half is striking because she has married wealthy, and she mm-hmm. is immediately wearing like that big white fur coat that's just like beautiful. Her house is, you know, luxurious with the furniture and the clothes and the candles and and all that ornate detail. But even in the first half, when she's relatively poor there's that scene where she's doing the rug beating um with all of her Mm -hmm. neighbors at the complex they all bring their rugs out and hang over like branches and stuff to beat them and that that shot is like narratively kind of incidental until they get up to the apartment but there's just so much going on in that shot like in terms of the visual depth of it you see everyone in that shot it's a really clear image there's just it's like a really active frame um there's I just feel like there's formally a lot um, alive in this movie. It's so good. <laughs> right.
1: And then there's like, there's the, the snowy um, corridor T where um, Joan Fontaine is standing there in her black coat, you know, hugging her arms with her back to the wall, you know, mm. just waiting for Stefan to sidle up and you're, you're just kind of lingering there. There's some kids down the way. Um, some people walk past and then turn and then walk and grab a snowball and it almost looks like they're looking directly at the camera and they Mm -hmm. take their hat off and they put it back and there's just this richness, this aliveness that makes you wonder about like these different people, even though they never said a word Mm -hmm. and even though you were always focused on Joan, you saw these other things out there, you know, while you were focused on her.
0: Mm hmm. And you already brought it up, but just to bring it up again because it's so good. You brought up the very first kind of blurry dissolve we get when we're going from the framing device and into the kind of inner narrative. And there are so many like dissolves like that that are just so beautiful. They're, I think they're better aesthetically than they are like in concept because the concept's like kind of straightforward, right? It's kind of about a blurry, your memory being blurry, which almost sounds like. Like it's such a simple explanation for something that on screen is so beautiful. Uh, it looks so good.
1: Right. Interesting. So I don't know that it's say blurry, right? Because it's, it's not even his memory. It's, it's her memory. And, but she's also, you know, number one, when we remember things, we're remembering how them, how we want to. And then when she's putting it to paper, she's mm-hmm. even taking that next step of, you know, telling it in a way that you want. And, um, you know, there to me it's gauzy. There's mm-hmm. there's this extra level of of cotton balls and, you know, beautiful lighting and um exacerbated shadows and, and gorgeousness um that underlines what is ultimately like a terribly sad story about a woman never having uh requited love,
0: mm-hmm. losing
1: her child, <laughs> and the the greatest point perhaps of Max Ophuls that I've come mm-hmm. across is she marries for wealth and is ultimately in every way unhappy.
0: (laughs) Pretty much. Uh, Which uh, Do do you feel like this movie, in coming back to where it began with Stefan ultimately deciding to participate in the duel and the next morning, um, is it looking for some some happiness in this ending that it might not otherwise have by giving him an opportunity to redeem himself? Um, That was kind of what I felt was... A very much a movie and studio kind of thing versus how how the original text obviously ends. Um, And in a little bit of a false way, it doesn't really bother me very much, but I kind of feel like what good is redemption when she's already dead? It doesn't do, doesn't do anybody any good. Um, But I do think it's an, maybe an effort to um, bring some brightness to this otherwise quite heartbreaking story.
1: Yeah. I think it's one of those things that, um, Gosh, I would imagine Altman doing where Altman's like, no studio, I'll totally do this. But then like has a totally different objective than the objective that you just laid out. Mm -hmm. And that being like, not only does he now know that, know that like she died and was in love with him. Like he's got a pointless reason that he's going to go die. Number one.
0: Yeah. yeah, Number
1: two, he has to go tell her husband that she's dead. Mm -hmm. Or number three, he has to go kill (laughs) the woman who loved him that he didn't even know uh his husband
0: mm-hmm. after
1: his child died like either like no matter what like it just underlines what's already tragic
0: mm-hmm. but i
1: could totally see the studio being like now this this is a a moral narrative that we can get behind right you know? he's
0: he's he's found his errors he's uh yeah redeeming himself partially but really
1: max Ophuls is like and now he has to like go like commit even more agony
0: yeah um and that kind of echoes the the end of Adam, uh, the end of the earrings of Madame Duh which ends with this, um, with a duel as well. I can imagine him being like, "Oh yeah, I've done, I've done that. Let's do, let's let's do the duel thing." Um,
1: yeah, that, that's the one that I really wanted to get to that I just didn't like. time. Up. Yeah, yeah, and about timing, you know, we had a little bit longer of a lead on this one, and I was like, I don't want to watch it too soon because then I'm gonna forget, and then yeah time compiled up with uh vif and fantastic fest here and uh tiff and all sorts of stuff and i just ended up not having time for another yep. foreign language film
0: <laughs> yeah um louis jordan as stefan were you a fan fantastic he's good he's, real he's good. so <laughs> convincing
1: and as he ages it's just pulled off Perfectly, just like Joan, you can't really put your finger on it entirely until the very end when his hair is literally a different shade. Mm-hmm. But I mean, up until then, like he's just slowly developing and, and changing in um, and, and really convincing ways that are not um, over, the, I wouldn't quite say subtle, but you know, somewhere in there where he's he's changing and adapting and aging almost naturally. And that's just so hard to pull off. I I can't figure out exactly how they did that so well.
0: Yeah, and I think that makes this story a particularly unique one. Is how genuine his fascination with her so often seems when she's talking and he's listening. He seems to be listening so intently, and he really holds his 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 eye contact with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that this is a story in which he has this real fascination with her has these lovely moments and then just plain kind of forgets about her. It's so different from heartbreaking romances where it's usually a death. When one member of the couple dies, they fight something, breaks them apart. She's obsessed with him. He's pretty fascinated with her. And then he forgets. And that's, it's just like, it's a, um, a really different kind of, um, way for this relationship to not work out. Right. But because he's not cruel, I guess is what I should say. he, um, is passive in his uh, um, in in the way he hurts her. You know, he he does not come across as um, outwardly um, hurtful.
1: I completely agree, and this is not really addressed within the film, but in the text, I mean, she becomes a woman of the night for a long period of time.
0: Right, right, and
1: tons of guys fall in love with her. Mm-hmm. and she just throws them to the side and it's mm-hmm. like if you really want to like pick who's a villain in this narrative like it would definitely be her because she's getting all these men to fall in love with her so that she can provide for her son and herself up until the point where she gets going steady with someone um, and he is totally unknowingly hurting people but she's actively kind of partaking in something that is hurtful and it's Mm -hmm. it's just um i find it unfortunate that the film didn't go there i still think the film is close to perfect um but it's just one one of those little tiny notes that really changes how it plays as a film versus how the narrative plays because they i mean i think there's a couple words said maybe where he says you know i'm surprised you could book me in like so soon or whatever Mm. and and you know there's a little homage to like him thinking that she is a whore right um, right in that way um and maybe he's looking at that person who he knows and knows that like many um society men of that aristocracy that you know that's probably just a paid woman on his arm and Mm -hmm. he decides that he fancies her and tries to get her to come with him um, which is what happens in the the novella itself. Um, and there's room for that to be what's happening on screen, but it is the ap- the opposite of overt. It, you
0: really totally. have to,
1: like, overthink it.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, like, one of the biggest deviations, um, for sure. Um, and it's interesting that, like, not only does she not become a prostitute in the film, but when we go... Overtly. Right. Well, when she goes to the dress shop... And she – one of the first things she says about her getting the job at the dress shop is that the girls learned many things there. Um, Yes. And we see one of the customers asking her boss a little question that he doesn't quite finish – but he's clearly, you know, inquiring about her perhaps availability for the evening or something like that. And she says, no, she's not like the other girls. So that the movie goes out of its way to not only not include the prostitution of the text, but also indicate that she is not doing that. It's, a, it's like an overcorrection. just mm-hmm. um, kind of interesting. Well, at that
1: point in time, she wasn't. Right. Within the novella. Uh,
0: That's right, when she moves to Linz. Right? Yeah, you're right. I guess. Oh, no, um, she moves
1: from Linz back to Vienna. I don't think she started immediately. It it she it was after she had a baby with Stefan that she began, if right. I remember correctly. Um, but what's interesting is in Caught, the same thing happens. She's she's working in the shop. She's showing these clothes. A man who represents a wealthy man shows up with a card and wants her to come to this yacht party. She's, you know, vehement. I don't do that. I'm not that type of girl. And then her friend who she lives with in a flop house that's, like, straight out of... Um, Gosh, what were those fantastic movies that we watched from the 30s and 40s? Uh, Preston Sturgis. Like, mm. she lives in, like, a, a Preston Sturgis flop house with this other mm. girl, you know. Um, and they're, she's trying to convince this girl to go for it because what else are you going to do with your life besides get married to a wealthy man? And that's, mm. like, that's this thing that's, I think, really at the heart of Ophuls is... um you know if a woman wants to get married she should never get married for money like I think he, mm-hmm. he's actually very vehement in that um, in all the films I've seen like the only relationships he ever respects on screen are ones of love right like there's, mm-hmm. there's even an old couple in this film that just is super brief where she's leaving the clothing shop and mm-hmm. this old woman is met by this older man and they walk home um, or they seem to be walking home and there's just like this gorgeous note that is passive there about like how Mm. beautiful, um, you know, mutual relationships are that isn't a woman marrying for money or a man marrying for status or whatever, like where it's just two people actually in love instead of seeing a false value there. And that's ultimately perhaps a letter of an unknown woman. And this rendition is about is this, this false value that is, um, placed above all others, this idealism.
0: Yeah um sort of taking that but running a slightly different direction. I do think the marriage, her getting married, introduces like some totally different concepts. I don't even really feel like are in the text at all with, about honor. And mm-hmm. um that's that themes like that's entirely the movie's own kind of um idea that it's messing with because that's one of the first things we hear from Stefan at the beginning of the film is that he is planning to do the dishonorable thing and skip out on this duel. And then she is faced with this choice where her husband suggests there is such a thing as honor. The honorable thing to do here is stay here with me, your son, your family. This is, that is the honorable thing. Um, And this kind of question of like, what's selfish and what's not? I mean, arguably she has acted selflessly with regard to her relationship to Stefan her whole life. And this is the one time She's going to try this for herself when she does leave her husband and see if, um, Stefan might respond. So yeah, these questions of honor, selfishness versus selflessness, I think are all kind of interesting and, uh, kind of tangled in a good way.
1: Yeah, they're very tangled, um, right, because, like, there, there is that honor thing, but then there's, <laughs> there's her just wanting, um her own version of gratification and then choosing that like, she doesn't, she doesn't want to have it be false, right? Like that's really what she's getting at. It's not that she's protecting him in that moment entirely. It's that she doesn't want to admit it out loud in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. And, um, you know, be alone with herself truly, you know, cause once this is one of those things where once you say it, you can never take it back. And, oh, yeah. you know, she chooses not to. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot there. Um, I think we're coming to the end. So I'll, I'll talk about one of the most heartbreaking things in the novella and ask you if you think they handled it well mm. in the film, White Roses. Mm. How do you think they handled it within the film? Did it work for you in the novella? Does it does it lose some of its energy here? Or are you okay with how it was played?
0: It doesn't not work in the movie, but it loses a lot of its significance relative to the written text, where it's a really kind of uh, beautiful and important strand of um, their relationship. We do, I don't think we get anything in the movie about her sending these roses to him every year on his birthday, right? We just see mm-hmm. them on the table, mm-hmm. and it's kind of a... Tip and, and he to gets the text, a, but
1: gets one one single white rose for her on the carriage.
0: Yeah, so I'll say that I didn't dislike what it did with the white roses, but I did kind of miss that element from the written text because I think it's very nicely handled there. Right, and
1: <laughs> but the anecdote in the written text is like the next day is his birthday, mm-hmm. and she's asking him to go get them for her. Like,
0: mm-hmm. do this
1: for me. Mm-hmm. I've never asked you to do anything for me before. But the one thing I want you to do is get yourself a gift for me. Mm. And it's like, oh, it's just so heart-wrenching. And, you know, you see it in the film and because you know it from the text, like, that bundle of white roses, like, hits. But then you're like, wait, why are there white roses?
0: Yeah.
1: Did he have his birthday? Am I missing something? Like, why are these here right now?
0: That's one where brevity maybe gets, uh, the movie maybe misses a little something due to its brevity i was going to say the same thing about the fact that she originally was standing outside his apartment night after night for a long time before she ever first encountered him and she says that in the narration in the movie i don't know that you really feel that it's like the first time we see her outside his apartment they he turns around and says hello so there is some condensing of of narrative information that i think sometimes uh if if you've read the text, I think you find yourself longing for. If you hadn't read the text, I don't think you'd even notice, though.
1: Right, but wouldn't you just love like a forty second dissolve of just multiple nights and and dusks of her just standing there staring up at that that lit window?
0: Yeah, he's not afraid of that kind of montage. We get one at the end. Um, that that might help to suggest. The, uh, the endurance of her interest, for sure.
1: Um, anything else? Should we go to favorite scenes?
0: Let's do it. Anything come to mind?
1: How dare you. Um, so I've always had this favorite scene, and it is the the scene that this film is known for. It is the train sequence, mm. in which they are simultaneously falling into a romantic... In engagement of fawning over each other in this kind of magical romanticism of the night while they're on a train ride moving nowhere with the painted screen behind them showing the Alps or wherever else they'd like to go. it's it's a gorgeously shot sequence, but it's also just romantically swooning it conveys the emotionality of these characters completely and their performances within the frame are, that of adoration toward one another and you know, this, this meagerness, but this overexcitement, it's almost childlike infatuation. Um, they just, it comes together flawlessly.
0: Good scene. Good scene. I might go with a scene where we see her in her youth kind of sneaking out of her room while her mom's still in the living room, just to go out to the hallway and try to listen to him playing the piano. This is well before she had seen him for the first time, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, Partly just because of the music he's playing. Oh my goodness, it's so beautiful. And she opens up a little window, and you see like a little wind kind of like rustle her hair. And there are some nice like um, reflections in this movie, and kind of mirror shots. And this is this one feels a expressionism. even expressionism. Yeah, this one feels even more kind of offhanded, where she's kind of just bathing in this music for a second and wondering what's on the other side of the wall. And her face is kind of reflected in that window right there. Love it great stuff
1: so now i'm gonna caveat and i'm gonna say one of the best choices by max Ophels within this film is the repetition of the stairwell shot um she is taken um or she finds out that she's going to move and she wants to go confront stefan as this 12 year old girl and she she goes back in to the apartment house to wait and he comes home with a girl and she goes all the way up the stairs past his apartment, and she, and we don't see her face; we see the back of her. It's kind of a third-person perspective mm-hmm. thing, and the camera does like the sideways dolly pan to where Stefan's hallway to his apartment is, um, and he's coming up with this woman, and she's crushed. The effect of the camera turning like that and her placement within the frame gives it this um, dizzying, like, um just absolutely overwhelmed with sadness and and pain effect for her and just her in the frame while the rest of the frame is not doing that it's very mm. very interesting he repeats that same exact shot later when she is going up mm. to the apartment with Stefan it's it's like track for track same exact shot same exact technique same exact camera placement and mm. timing it's just this flawless repetition to show that she was upset at, at these horrors going up into his his room, and then mm. she became another one of those nameless women who goes there, mm-hmm. and um, just that repetition I think is one of the the genius things that Ophuls did within the film.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have that repeated. The beginning itself is obviously kind of a repetition in how we circle back to where we began. The train station. We mm-hmm. first see her leave Stefan for two weeks, and then leave her son Stefan for two weeks repetition is quite satisfying.
1: It's fantastic. That is Letter from an Unknown Woman.
0: Until next time where we'll talk about Mirror. And that's another one in the can. Now you don't.